Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Trump's taxes, revelations on how much tax the president pays and how much money he owes. TikTok ticks on. The Chinese app gets a download ban reprieve. Smick smacked. China's biggest chipmaker hit with a U.S. export restriction. And... The show must go on, the creative nonprofit keeping culture alive during COVID. It's Monday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. A pleasure to be with you as always. And I'm very excited about dancing through the next hour. We've got the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, coming up shortly to talk about the firm's latest plans to protect the planet and perhaps a sneaky question or two on TikTok coming up as well. For now, though, we're headed for a solidly higher open on Wall Street ahead of what could be filled with a week of wild cards. Let me explain what I mean. W for the winding down of the third quarter and the start of the fourth quarter trading this week. I stands for IPOs and direct listings. Data software giant Palantir set to launch midweek. L is for labor. We've got the last U.S. jobs report before the November elections out this Friday. And D, of course, for debate. The first Biden-Trump showdown takes place tomorrow night here in the U.S. Our wild week follows a choppy one, too, for stocks last week. The Nasdaq rising over 1% Friday, but the S&P saw its fourth straight weekly decline. Actually, it was 2% Friday, wasn't it? It was 1% on the week. The majority still sitting on solid gains for Q3 overall. But year-to-date charts clearly show momentum stalling for the past month. And that's a global story. Take a look at that chart. We're searching for direction after dramatic stimulus-fueled recoveries, at least in stock markets around the world. The question is now what? In Europe, banks are leading the charge with HSBC up 5.9.5%. Chinese insurance firm Ping An raising its stake in the company. Context, though, key. HSBC still down some 50% year to date. In Asia, China's biggest chipmaker, SMIC, fell almost 4% on fears that it could lose access to U.S. technology. All the details on that in just a moment, because we are going to begin today's drivers talking taxes. 36 days to go until the U.S. presidential election and the New York Times reporting what it calls years of tax avoidance by President Trump and chronic financial losses for his businesses. It says he paid just $750 in income taxes in the year he won the presidency. President Trump, meanwhile, calls it fake news. Yeah, basically, well, first of all, I paid a lot, and I paid a lot of state income taxes, too. 
the New York State charges a lot, and they paid a lot of money at state. Uh, it'll all be revealed. It's going to come out. But after the auditors, after the, I'm being, they, they're doing their assessment. We've been negotiating for a long time. Things get settled, like in the IRS. But right now, when you're under audit, you don't do it. You don't do that. So we're under audit. But the story is a total fake. And all of this, or is this one, you know, we had the same exact questions, usually asked by the same people. And that took place four years ago. You remember that. Joe Johns is at the White House for us. Joe, I'm not sure uh, that this gave us anything more than what was already suspected. He pays little taxes, he hemorrhages money in parts of his business, and he takes huge write-downs. This is what the New York Times is saying. That, that's exactly correct. And one of the biggest takeaways, I think, from this reporting in the New York Times, they say there's more that's going to come out, is that he takes business losses, and those losses essentially absolve him from paying income tax. Uh, you gave most of the top lines there, but one of the most interesting things uh, that you see in this report is the fact that the president uh, continues to be engaged in this audit with uh, the United States government over a $72 million refund he took in 2010 uh, on his taxes, essentially wiping out any of the tax he paid in 2006 through 2008. So uh, the question is whether or not that is legitimate. And if it's found to not be legitimate, the president could well owe $100 million in taxes. That's another big takeaway. But probably the most important thing for the purposes of politics in the United States right now is that the image of Donald Trump as an extremely successful and wealthy businessman uh, is now in question, and this is something that is very likely to come up in the debate uh, just tomorrow night, as well as something that will be part of the American political conversation all the way up to Election Day. And I'm sure the president will say what he said back in the debates in 2016 when Hillary Clinton tackled him on his taxes, and she said, you don't pay tax. And he said, yeah, that's because I'm smart. This is legal tax avoidance. You have profits somewhere and you have losses somewhere else and you net them off and, and pay very little. The key question, Joe, is does it change the mind of voters in any way? And probably not, quite frankly, because there's a very small amount of the electorate, probably only about 5% by some estimates, that has not made up its mind about who they're going to vote for coming up this election. So uh, that small group is what the two sides might be fighting for. Otherwise, the supporters of the presidents are, are entrenched uh, in their position and the people who are opposed to the president, the critics of the president who are going to vote against him, uh, won't have their minds changed. Uh, their minds were already made up, Julia. Yes, and we'll reiterate, the president says it's fake news and the way to address it and underscore it is to release the tax returns and prove it. Joe Johns at the White House there for us. Thank you so much. A U.S. ban on TikTok downloads has been averted for now. An order that would have kicked it out of app stores in the United States on Sunday was temporarily suspended by a U.S. federal judge. Selena Wang joins me now. A further stay of execution. The story never ends, Selena. But it's not over yet. It's a temporary reprieve. So explain what's going on. 
Yeah, Julia, this is just a temporary sigh of relief, a temporary victory for TikTok. The ban is averted for now, but this ruling from the judge does not block this November 12th date in which another set of restrictions are set to go in place that would yet again effectively ban TikTok. But what this does do is buy a little bit more time for this company to get approval from U.S. and Chinese regulators for that potential deal with Walmart and Oracle. If that is successful in time, this entire ban could be averted. But we were talking about this on Friday, Julia, and this same sticking point still remains. This question around who is going to own TikTok. Trump has said he's not going to approve a deal unless Americans have control of it. But the companies involved themselves can't seem to agree on the answer to this question. Oracle said ByteDance is not going to have any stake in the new entity that will be created, TikTok Global. Meanwhile, ByteDance says it's going to have 80 percent control of it. But... Again, TikTok can take a temporary sigh of relief. The company had said in court filings that it was facing catastrophic economic loss. In fact, it said that even if it were just banned for two months, that as many as half of its American users would never come back. Wow. That was the justification. I guess that's based on modeling from what they saw in India with the ban over there. That's um. That's a fascinating argument. Selena, this whole thing's been so messy. You have a beautiful phrase for it, which is whack-a-mole. And at the heart of it is American data protection and security. That's what we have to keep in mind about this deal. Whatever happens, is American data protected? Absolutely. I think all of this drama, the back and forth, the talk of this mess really gets away from the underlying question that really started all of this, which is, is TikTok a national security risk? The Trump administration clearly making the argument this entire time that it does pose that risk. But experts say that this doesn't address that core problem. The underlying issue here is that America doesn't adequately protect personal data. They say that the way to get at this is instead of singling out out particular companies and playing whack-a-mole. Instead, the Trump administration should be focused on creating universal standards and legislation that govern data collection and data use for companies across the board from countries around the world. Even tech companies that directly compete with TikTok are criticizing the Trump administration's approach. So NetChoice is this trade group that represents companies like Facebook, Google, and Amazon. They put out a statement saying that, quote, there is no previous example in U.S. history of a complete ban on a media platform that deprives a quarter of the U.S. population access to information on that platform. The group also warned that this ban could also give reason for other governments on the world, around the world to bar American companies from market access. Some experts say it's essentially making a blueprint for how foreign governments can block giant tech companies under the guise of national security. So, Julia, the stakes here are extremely high. The outcome of this would not only set the tone for the future of U.S.-China relations, but also potentially change the course of the global Internet. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? NetChoice's statement on this doesn't surprise me because they have a vested interest to allow as much access as possible. And I couldn't agree more with you on the the blanket standards here. But let's control American businesses before you worry about everybody else. And we can't do that. So, Selena, I'll see you in 10 years when we solve all that and we'll discuss it. (laughs) Back to you. Yes. Skeptic here. Thank you for that. All right. China's biggest chipmaker reportedly in the crosshairs, too, amid tensions between Beijing and Washington. Shares of SMIC closed nearly 4 percent lower in Hong Kong after reports that it could lose access to key U.S. technology. Sharice Pham is in Hong Kong for us, too. Sharice, great to have you with us. We can't underscore the importance, I think, enough of this company for China's chip making ambitions. Sanctions on this company would be huge. <laughs> 
Sanctions on SMIC would be a really, really lethal blow to China's chip-making ambition. SMIC is already behind when it comes to the industry leaders that are making advanced semiconductors. And let's not forget that semiconductors really are the, the, the building blocks for the technology that we all have, that we all have in our pockets that power our laptops and, and power connected cars and, and power our smart speakers. They are at the heart of the future of technology and advanced technology. And both China and Washington want to control those technologies. And China, unfortunately, is losing this battle. So SMIC under pressure today after reports that it could be facing sanctions uh, and could lose access to key U.S. technology. Um, now, the Commerce Department reportedly has sent a letter to companies saying that uh, there is an unacceptable risk that exports to SMIC could be used for military purposes. Now, SMIC telling me today that it's not aware of this letter that's being sent around and that's being reported and reiterating again that its semiconductors are only used for civilian purposes and commercial purposes, and it has no ties to the Chinese military. So, the you know, for now, it appears that SMIC might not be added to the entity list. Let's not forget the entity list is a really terrible trade blacklist that companies do not want to get on. That's the one that Washington added Huawei to, and Huawei's global business has been crippled ever since. But analysts saying that it might not be necessary to even add SMIC to that entity list because if Washington simply says that SMIC products could be used for military purposes, that could be enough to require U.S. companies to apply for export licenses to supply SMIC, and that would really weigh heavily on the company's advancement and the company's ability to manufacture semiconductors going forward, Julia. Yeah, and huge implications for clients like Qualcomm as well here in the United States. Cherise Pham, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right, these are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The world approaching another grim milestone in the fight against coronavirus pandemic. The global death toll is expected to reach one million in the coming hours. Currently, there are more than 998,000 deaths from the virus worldwide. Tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan are flaring over a disputed region, both sides accusing the other of deadly attacks that began over the weekend. The region at the centre of the conflict is internationally recognised as part of being as being part of Azerbaijan, but it's governed by a majority group of ethnic Armenians. The two former Soviet republics previously fought a war over the land. It ended with a Russian-brokered ceasefire in 1994. All right, coming up here on First Move, we're talking water and the cloud. Microsoft's President Brad Smith on the show to explain their latest major environmental pledge and no audience, no income. Until now, that is how one New York nonprofit took steps to find its way around COVID. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where stocks are green pre-markets and on track to rise for a third straight session. Actually, we're approaching uh, almost 2%, as you can see, gains pre-market for the Nasdaq. Movers today include people mover Uber. Shares are set to rise some 4% after winning back its operating license in London. The court says it's satisfied Uber is addressing long-standing security concerns. 
Deal-making in the news too. Caesars Entertainment in talks to buy UK-based bookmaker William Hill in a deal worth some $3.7 billion. Hill shares soared on deal speculation Friday. They've pulled back some 11% today. Microsoft in focus, making another bold environmental pledge. It's promising to replenish more clean water than it uses, so becoming water positive in its direct operations within a decade. It's just the latest climate-related promise from the firm that includes becoming carbon negative by 2030, and that means removing more carbon from the atmosphere than it generates. It's also promoting more biodiversity, reducing waste, and is running a climate innovation fund. Brad Smith is the president of Microsoft, and he joins us now. Brad, always fantastic to have you on the show I know you feel the same as I do, no matter how pressing the short term problems and clearly COVID-19 is vast, we cannot let the focus slip on addressing climate change. And I think that's the message once again from Microsoft. Uh, absolutely, Julia, and it's good to be with you. And as you, you and I were talking when the year began, uh, you know, every month, every quarter, there are different issues. COVID is the issue of the year. Uh, I still think climate and sustainability is the issue of the decade uh, and beyond. And so we cannot let up all the work that needs to be done. So talk to me about this positive water pledge, because your footprint is vast. And I read the whole release. I mean, we're it's a sweeping journey from California to Israel to India in terms of the project that you're embarking on here. Yeah, what, as you said, we, we committed to do is be water positive by the end of the decade. Uh, and that it first requires that we reduce the amount of water that we consume. We consume a lot, 4.2 million cubic meters a year. Uh, what we've learned already is there is a lot that we can do to reduce that. Uh, in areas like Puget Sound, where there's a lot of rain, we can harvest rainwater. Uh, in a place like Israel, where the, it's an arid and hotter climate, uh, we're actually going to use the water that is produced as a byproduct from our air conditioning to water all of the plants on our campus. Uh, and we're going to be building and, and putting in place wastewater treatment plants uh, on our large campuses to, to recycle water. Uh, but we also need to do more than that. And that's where the replenishment side comes in. It means that we'll be investing in projects to restore wetlands and the like, uh, to reduce the impact of asphalt, which stops uh, water from going back into the ground. Um, so we'll cut our consumption and invest in replenishment. That's how we'll become water positive. I think the key takeaway for me, though, is that it's just not all about you. It's about harnessing your suppliers, bringing your clients on board. I mean, one of the names that we've spoken about before, Ecolab, using their data and their technology to help others become um, more water efficient. To what extent is this about building a template, perhaps a roadmap that other companies that perhaps have less deep pockets as Microsoft in order that you've perhaps made the mistakes and say, look, this is the template. Now you can follow what we've done and, and improve yours too. I think the world does need a template. And one of the great things that we're able to do is, frankly, learn from a lot of other companies. Ecolab is a great example uh, of a company that's probably taught us more than we'll ever be able to <laughs> share with them back. But I, if there's a thread that runs through everything from, say, carbon to water to waste, it really is the power of data. 
you can't reduce what you can't measure. And I think where we come in uh, as a tech company is more technology that everyone can use uh, to measure the carbon that they're emitting, the water that they're consuming, the waste uh, that they're putting out. Uh, and then we can work together. And that's what we're seeing. It's really the power of coalitions, whether it is to uh, address water or, or waste. Uh, you see more companies, independent of governments, just stepping forward and saying, we know we need to do this. Let's do it together. OK, Brad, you mentioned the magic word there, which was coalition. Again, one of the standout statistics for me, 150 of the world's biggest companies have the potential to influence one third of global freshwater use. You were just one of seven companies that said, look, we're going to build the Water Resilience Coalition, come together to try and address this. How many companies do you have now and what's the ethos of that? Well, I think we're at a point now where we're in the dozens uh, in most of these instances. Um, but I guess what has encouraged me most about 2020, Julia, is how this is gaining momentum even in a year where people are facing so many other challenges. Uh, and you know, we've deliberately started with the companies that want to really lean in. They're typically at the forefront of their field. They want to innovate and we can all innovate together. Uh, I think we're then going to see these coalitions grow quickly, um, perhaps more than anything else, because that's what consumers want. And as we all know, companies have to respond to their customers. Am I being impatient? When I mentioned the word 150 and then you mentioned the teens, am I being impatient given the backdrop this year, Brad? Or do, to your point, we as customers need to push harder? Well, I think we should all be impatient. Uh, we don't really have time to lose when it comes to addressing the sustainability of the planet. And I think we should look to a future, uh, not just a couple of years, but you know, every year where we're constantly getting better. And I think we should look to a future where it is as easy for a consumer to pick up a product and know, for example, how much carbon was emitted to create it, as it is to go to the grocery store and see how many calories you'll consume if you eat it. Uh, we can empower <laughs> consumers with data and that kind of transparency. That's such a great idea. Yes, this is going to cost you X number of calories and this is what it costs in terms of carbon footprint. Um, I want to move on because it's a great thing and you can come back and track progress with us. But I do want to talk about TikTok. I can only imagine what kind of summer you and uh, CEO Satya had trying to uh, negotiate this deal. Are you in some way relieved given the complexity of it to be out of it? Well, it's uh, it, you know, it was an all-consuming summer for a few of us at Microsoft, which is a way of saying there was no summer. Um, <laughs> It, we, you know, we came away, frankly, with an enormous appreciation for for TikTok as a service, for the importance of its users, uh, and I think, frankly, for two things. Um, one is really, you know, creating a model uh, that would do for TikTok users what they want, what they need and love about the service, while protecting national security, preserving privacy, protecting digital safety, authenticity, transparency, and the like. And you know, we we learned a lot by working with ByteDance to fashion that model. Now, obviously, we were disappointed when you know, ByteDance went in a different direction. We were disappointed when we couldn't pursue this with Walmart because I just think they're a tremendously important company when we think about the future of e-commerce. But I think there's a second thing that we'll all continue to follow, and I think Microsoft will probably contribute to in other ways. 
we do need a new technology model. So that technology that is created in, say, China and comes to the United States or that's created in the United States and goes to China can do so in a way that benefits consumers, but really satisfies the need for trust around security and privacy and the like. And you know, this is a bit of a roller coaster for all of us. But I hope that as we continue to traverse it, we'll see that kind of model emerge. I like the idea of a model for protecting data in whichever country, but also the relationship over technology between the two nations going forward. I will never be forgiven by the gaming enthusiasts uh, among my uh, friends and colleagues if I didn't ask you about the Bethesda Softworks deal. Obviously, a gaming software company at, as part of the $7.5 billion deal with the Zenith Max Media. Brad, talk to me about the vision for gaming. And uh, just to add on to that, can you tell me if any of these games will be exclusive to Xbox and PC in the future? You see, I was given that question. Well, <laughs> yeah, we, we won't talk today about you know, which titles will be on which platform, but I think your question about the vision is the right one. Uh, interestingly enough, we, we kicked off the TikTok and the Bethesda or Zenimax negotiations at precisely the same time. Uh, and we were really delighted uh, to, you know, to reach this agreement with Zenimax and, and bring Bethesda into the Microsoft family. Um, you know, we have a new console coming out in the coming months. It really is a cutting edge piece of technology for the, you know, not just tens, but hundreds of millions of people around the world that enjoy gaming will have a broader portfolio of games than ever before. And our vision in part is that you'll be able to play a game on any platform that's part of our xCloud initiative, whether it's on a phone or a PC or a console, and you'll be able to get a subscription that will give you access to many, many more of the games than you would otherwise have. And so what you really see us doing is broadening the opportunity for people to participate in you know, what is one of the world's you know, greatest entertainment and leisure time activities and is continuing to grow rapidly. That's fantastic. You win some, you lose some. I guess that's, that's the, the And you lose your summer in the process. <laughs> Brad, great to have you on. Thank you so much once again. And um, we love the focus on uh, the climate and protecting our planet and a beautiful well, library you. behind you as well. Gorgeous. Yes, no, thank Brad you. Smith See you soon. There. See you soon, president of Microsoft. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the second to last trading day of the third quarter. And we're beginning the week with strong gains, as you can see, for the major averages. Investors hoping to hear news on both science and stimulus in the coming days and weeks. Hope floats. U.S. House Democrats looking to pass a more than $2 trillion emergency aid bill as soon as this week. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says negotiations could begin again soon. And we should begin getting updated vaccine trial data within the next few weeks, too. So we're looking for a silver linings to the clouds at this moment. COVID-19 has changed the behaviours of so many of us around the globe. Handshakes are out. Outdoor dining is in. And more of us are turning to cashless transactions offered by a growing number of fintech firms. One of the leading players is Chime. It's now valued at some $14.5 billion. That's higher than even the online trading sensation Robinhood. Chime is a fintech and online payments firm that aims to offer 
basic financial services for free. And I'm pleased to say joining us now, the CEO and co-founder of Chime, Chris Britt. Chris, fantastic to uh, have you with us. We'll talk about that valuation. But first, just give us the premise of what Chime offers to its customers. Well, you had a great lead in. Thank you for that. We believe that basic banking services should be free and truly aligned with consumers' best interests. And especially, you know, given the pandemic and uh, everything that's going on uh, around the world right now, so many consumers have a lot of anxiety around their money um, and just making ends meet. So uh, we have a mission around helping our members achieve financial peace of mind. And we do that with a checking account, a high yield savings account, and a debit card, and, and more recently a credit card that allow people to manage all of their daily finances. Okay, so let's say I take out a credit card, a debit card, I've got an account with you, but I go into overdraft. What fees am I going to incur? Well, um, right, so we offer these banking services. Chime is actually not a bank. We have a couple of bank partners that actually hold the deposits. And in partnership, and these are regulated by the FDIC and, and the United States regular, uh, regulatory bodies. Um, with Chime, if you take the account into a negative state, we'll actually allow you to, to take it up to $100 without negative, without charging you an overdraft fee. Most major financial institutions in America would charge you $35 for each of those individual transactions that you're negative. And the numbers are in the tens of billions of dollars a year that consumers are paying uh, for really these these small dollar uh, transactions. So we do a few things to help people with short-term liquidity. We let them take the account negative without charging them a fee. And then we also, if you sign up for payroll direct deposit, we give you access to the to those funds a couple days early. So people love that combination of services. Yeah, and you made this very important point that you're not a bank. You just have the support of those in order to make deposits. And it's $11 billion, I believe, the amount that banks took for overdraft fees in um, in 2019. It's an astonishing amount of money. And obviously, there's a debate going on behind the scenes about whether that's right or not. You also allow people to get access to stimulus payments when the financial aid came through from the US government more quickly than we've seen for others. Explain how that worked, because this is important too. Well, sure. Certainly a key value prop is this uh, for signing up for a Chime account is you get early access to your paycheck. And when it became clear that these stimulus payments were going to come through, uh, the team really mobilized to try to um, to give consumers access to, to Chime members access to those payments early as well. So I believe the payments were scheduled to arrive in consumers accounts on April 15th. And if you were a Chime member getting direct deposit you gained access to those payments as early as the 10th. So we gave them, we gave our members uh, access, early access uh, about five days early. And the total amount that, that we made available was a little over $1.5 billion. So that created a lot of buzz for the, uh, you know, within our membership and actually drove a, a ton of signups. It, it, our motivation was not to drive a bunch of signups, but really just to do the right thing. One of our core values here is to be member obsessed and to be human. And we just thought it was the right thing to do. And it really drove some great uh, business results for us as well. How many customers do you now have, Chris? Well, as a private company, we, we've sort of got out of the, the, the formula of giving <laughs> updates on active accounts every month. Um, but the you'll luxury. be able to read it in the one, one, one day. But we have many millions of, of uh, account holders. Um, and to give you a sense of, of scale, we now open on a monthly basis uh, many hundreds of thousands of new checking accounts every month. 
Are you profitable? You know, as a as a growth company, um, we do have very attractive unit economics. If you think about uh, the relationship that we form, and one of the reasons that we've benefited during COVID is that we really own the primary relationship with our members. Right. So they get direct deposit of their paycheck. And once you do that, the relationship and the financial model of the business is highly predictable, highly recurring, and actually highly profitable. So although we're still sort of in high growth mode in terms of acquisition efforts and product development and, and hiring teams, we actually have been EBITDA pro profitable uh, for the last four months, but we are not optimizing for that. And I don't anticipate being you know, full gap pro profitable uh, this year. It's interesting though, we should be calling you a software company because you're the interface, aren't you? You're building a, a sort of portfolio of, of understanding of how clients' finances work and you're the interface between the banks perhaps behind you that take the deposits, for example, and how the money and the payments are made with you guys sitting in the middle. Chris, talk to me about that valuation, $14.5 billion. Does that make you nervous? Is that a sign of the times perhaps or a sign of the future of finance or all of the above? Well, look, we all know markets go up and down. And, and like I've said uh, in other discussions, you know, we don't gauge our success based on the valuation level or comparisons or, or how much money we've raised. We, we gauge our success based on the impact we're having on our members. And I think um, the combination of things, one is we're disrupting financial services, but doing it in an asset light way. In other words, mm. we're not, a tr even though we partner to offer bank accounts, our business model is not bank-like. It's really more like a software subscription service that is highly recurring and, and highly profitable, as I said. And as a result of all those things, we're able to deliver better value back to the consumer in the form of, in the form of essentially fee-free banking that is actually helpful. So um, we're very proud of, of this latest round of financing, but it's just one step in, in a long journey. We believe that um, you know, over the long term, we will be an independent, um, large public company. And that's that's sort of the long term plan for us. Yes. Big financials watch this space. Chris, great to have you with us. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Uh, plenty more questions for you, as always. Chris Britt, the CEO and co-founder of Chime. Thank you for that. All right. Up next. Keeping the beauty of dance and music alive in the era of social distancing, we speak to the executive director of arts venue, Katzbahn. Welcome back to the show. COVID-19 restrictions brought the curtain down on arts venues around the world. But one New York dance center is finding creative ways to ensure the show goes on. Located in upstate New York, Katzbahn describes itself as an incubator of dance and creativity. For 30 years, it's hosted retreats and residencies on an estate that was once Eleanor Roosevelt's riding stables. Now, during the pandemic, it's become what it calls a sanctuary for dance. And joining us now is Sonia Kostic. She's executive director of Cats Barn. Sonia, fantastic to have you on the show. When I saw this, I was mesmerized. It reminded me of a Midsummer Night's Dream, dancing in the middle of fields. 
This is the first year in 30 you've put on live performances. COVID hit and you had to get creative. Explain what happened. Absolutely. So COVID definitely put an extreme challenge on our entire industry. And because what we do is performances with gatherings generally inside in theaters, um, that programming was closed down. So we took a look around at our 153 acres that is located in the Hudson Valley and we said, okay, let's do live programming outside safely and within all the mandates. I mean, you were taking some of the American Ballet Theater uh, ballerinas, putting them into quarantine bubbles and allowing them then to come and stay on site and dance to put on these performances. Because, as you said, safety have to come first. But the logistical challenge of this is um, is not small. No, we did a lot of research. We looked at um, what a lot of museums with outdoor sculptures were doing, as well as parks up here in the Hudson Valley. And we, you know, scrutinized all the details for safe, live outdoor arts and entertainment in the Hudson Valley. But yes, we did. We were able to gather just the most incredible artists from American Ballet Theater, New York City Ballet, Martha Graham, Elvin Ailey, and we had them follow really strict protocols, which included quarantining for two weeks prior to arrival, doing numerous testings. And we also implemented a lot of protocols for our staff, as well as audiences who were going to attend the performance. Yeah, I mean, it's such an immersive experience as well. It's not just about the dancers, it's the music, it's the environment, it, it's everything. Um, I believe you've taken around 150 of the dancers and these are premium athletes at their peak. What about for the rest? Sonia, just explain the challenges for the performers that we've seen all around the world, not just in New York, for example. What does it mean to not be able to dance? I know in many cases in New York, it's a case of going to get unemployment benefits because that's the only choice. Yes, it's been very challenging for artists, for companies, for theaters, and for so many of these artists, this is their livelihood. Um, They've been rehearsing and practicing and training for years and years. And as you know, for a dancer, um, one's professional career is so short. So it's really heartbreaking to see how we have to just pause and and have these dancers waiting and guessing, you know, when they will be allowed to resume their profession. Um, We are so grateful that we were able to provide over 100 artists a opportunity to perform this summer over the course of nine weeks for our summer festival. But yes, there there are so many artists who, who didn't have that opportunity. And I know that they are collecting unemployment. They are looking for, you know, unique and creative ways to, to stay viable and keep their craft alive. Um, uh, so much is being done right now digitally. Uh, I think there's a lot of new skills being learned um, among <laughs> artists. <laughs> Not just in the arts, but it is so important because it's so important for our well-being, too. And I do I feel passionately about this. Sonia, you're unique because you've come to Cuts and you have a, a dance culture background, but you also went to business school. You worked in finance for a while. And you and I have talked before this show about this belief that um, art never makes money. It's just intrinsic. It's a nonprofit. You don't make money. Do you think COVID perhaps will be a wake up moment where we have to think differently. We have to think about culture and the arts as a business model too, because it has to make money to survive tough periods like this. 
Absolutely. I think, um, you know, being presented with this challenge and these restrictions allows for us to take a moment and look at how we operate, how we have operated historically, and what new models perhaps um, have not yet been discovered that we could implement going forward. We're definitely looking at a new normal once we come out of this uh, entire pandemic. Things have changed. Audiences' needs and wants have changed. Artists' needs and wants have changed. And of course, you know, as a business, as a company, whether you are for-profit or not-for-profit, you need to look and see what your constituents need and want. Yeah. And we are going to be looking at a very different world. So I think it's an opportune moment to say, this is what we've always done, but can we do something that fits now with the world that we live in? Yeah, it's such a great point. And I know you weren't charging for these performances, you were relying on donations, but it's also a case of, you know, what are people willing to pay when they're told to pay it versus just being willing to donate? Talk to me about what happens next spring, summer, because it's difficult to do this when the weather gets cold. But I believe it's game on for next spring, summer, when uh, you're back and people can come back and watch again. Yes, we are so excited, actually. We are already deep in planning mode uh, for 2021. Even when it gets colder outside, I think that we have now uh, recognized the value of our facility and the need for it. And so we will continue robust programming, whether it's um, providing space for artists to come create and train and, and find new ways to get their art out into the world. Uh, when spring comes, you know, we now have a new venue uh, located outside. So it's an exciting prospect to think of all the things that we can do now that take place outside and provide, again, more opportunities for artists. And we want to include not just dance, but also music and art installation and poetry. And, you know, we want to provide a resource for all artists. And I think that with 153 acres, we have that space. And when you come here, you have time, you can work 24 seven. Um, so we're very excited. We have some really, really interesting projects on the horizon that we're very excited about and that will that will happen soon. And hopefully people will pay to come and see it because it's worth it. Sonia, great to have you on. Yeah. Thank you so much Thanks. and to stay in touch. Sonia Kostich, the Executive Director of Cat's Barn. Thank you for that. All right, coming up on the show, shipping in the deals. Up next, we'll be live in Dubai's biggest port to see what the recent pact between Israel and the UAE could mean for its business and operations. Stay with us. Business is the way forward. That's the thinking of the company that runs Dubai's biggest port after the recent normalization pact between the UAE and Israel. Some of the sectors already covered include shipping, science, technology and banking. Arjun Defterius spoke with the CEO of DP World about what's in it for them. We have been wasting our time in, 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 in confrontation and we can cold war, hot war. It didn't work for us at least. And we believe that this is going to strengthen their position in resolving this issue. In the meantime, as a UAE, we are looking at an opportunity that can come out of this that help both. Many believe that you signed a number of MOUs, and it's, as we say in English, window dressing, a lot of show, nothing inside. Uh, what's the counter argument to that, what's been signed so far? Not at all, actually. Uh, one thing you know in UAE, we don't waste our time in MOUs. MOUs are just uh, uh, 
kind of a document to set the pace for what you're going to do. But we know what you're going to do. We know the business. And we know how we can get the business. It is about technology, adoption. It's about uh, logistics. It's about connection. It's about uh, ability of both to trade and do business. We need something from them in technology. They need something from us. They need our market. They need our location. They need to learn how we do business in UAE because the way we, we, we do our business is totally different. They've been in isolation for a long time. And John joins us now. John, what a great conversation. Forget the MOUs. It's all about the business deals. Bring us the business deals. What more can you tell us about other opportunities? Eyes on a port in Israel, I believe, what? potentially. Well, this is the new end-to-end -end business, uh, Julie. I'm glad you brought it up because uh, DP World, for example, which operates this port uh, here in Jebel Ali in Dubai, is putting a tender in for the Haifa port to refurbish the existing facility along with an Israeli partner. The chairman says they hope to get that because that means the products can come here and then go to the subcontinent of Asia and then to Africa, offering Israel a market of 2 billion consumers that the UAE uh, taps into all the time. Secondarily, this is not very popular with the United States. China is trying to build a brand new terminal in Haifa. So important to the U.S. that Mike Pompeo flew to Israel in May trying to block it talking to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Sources tell me that's still proceeding. And then there's the next frontier. Let's put it that way, if we can bring up the, the graphic here. Already, the UAE and Israel looking at defense electronics, very important, energy, natural gas in the eastern Mediterranean, food security because of the arid climates here in the desert, and of course, also in Israel, and tourism. And if you want to look for signals, Julia, this is an interesting one. In the last 10 days, Emirates Airlines said it's going to offer kosher cuisine on its flights, looking forward to hosting Israeli passengers on Emirates flights as a bridge between East and West. They have a common DNA, Julia. That's what you find out from the DP World Chairman, and they're ready to do business, and that lays down the brickwork for uh, peace in the future. That's their intentions. Economics, it seems, is the best glue for this kind of arrangement holding together. John Devterius from Dubai, thank you so much for that there. All right, that's you it bet. for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe, and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.